Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. And those of you who are joining us online, we want to say good morning to you. Uh, as you've already heard, we got a huge day coming up following our 11 o'clock service with baptisms down. We're doing a New Testament style down at Tamman Park in the river. It's going to be wonderful, uh, and we hope that you will plan to join us for that. Uh, it's going to start at around 12.30, 12.45 as soon as everybody gets down there and we can get everybody lined up. So it's going to be a great day of celebration watching people take that next step in their faith. And so we're just giving uh, praise to God this morning for that. Also for just a great week of student camp. So thankful for Dylan and Courtney and their tremendous team of volunteers that uh, just pour so faithfully into uh, our students. And, um, and we're seeing the fruit of that as we're seeing students come forward and praying to receive Jesus Christ and taking the step of baptism. So good things are happening in our church. Uh, and that's good. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit moving in and among our children and our students and our adults. And we want to see that. Amen. We want to see that happening so that we know that there is life in the church, that God's Holy Spirit is here and he's working among his people. And so we are blessed to be a part of that. So it's an awesome place to be. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, uh, find verse 31. We'll start there in just a minute. If you, if you remember from last Sunday, in our series, Jesus entered into kind of a, a new discourse or a new section of the Sermon on the Mount where now he's teaching through some very practical ways to live out this blessed life or live out the kingdom life that he's, that he's drawing us to. And last week, we studied what Jesus taught about anger and lust and how we're, how we're supposed to deal with those things. And you may recall what Jesus said. He said, if you have a, a deep-rooted anger in your heart towards someone, then that is like emotional murder on the, the heart level, and you're subject to God's judgment. Jesus also said in that passage, anyone who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. So these are, these are tough teachings. These are straightforward kind of teachings of very practical issues. But remember what Jesus is doing here. He's taking these issues like anger and lust, and he's driving them down to the heart level. Remember, he he tell, he's, te he's telling the Pharisees and the experts of the law, you, you've been obedient to these commands only on the surface level, kind of like crossing off a list or, or, or checking a box. But Jesus is saying the kingdom life is about so much more. I want you to follow these commands, these teachings on the heart level. And we said this last week, if you want to write this down again, Jesus is not concerned with just our behavior. He's concerned with the condition of our hearts, which is the source of our behavior. Did you catch that verse that we read just a moment ago in worship? It said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The same is true from an abundance of the heart, the body acts. Our eyes entice our hearts and then our hearts entice our actions. And so Jesus is taking these very practical issues and he's driving them deep down onto the heart level. And, and he's doing the exact same thing today in our teaching. So here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32, Jesus is teaching on the subject of divorce. Okay, And, and contrary to what you might think, divorce was actually fairly common in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, we currently have Roman records that date all the way back to the first century of a woman who stood before a Roman judge to get her 10th divorce. 
Okay, so when we often think of the ancient world, especially ancient Israel, we think of it as a, as a conservative culture, and it was. But when it comes to this issue of divorce, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, had actually created an easy divorce culture, at least for the Jewish men. Okay, now we can kind of relate to that in our culture today. We have an easy divorce culture here in, in America. As a matter of fact, I did a little research this week and found out that the average cost for a wedding in 2021 was about $28,000, okay? You add the engagement ring to that, it can go up to $34,000, okay? I have a daughter that makes me nauseous to think about, okay? <laughs> Weddings are outrageously expensive, or they can be. On the other hand, an uncontested divorce in 2021, and it depends on a lot of factors, it can get complicated. The average cost, 5000 to 15000 And the lowest I saw was divorce advertised, a package for $750, clean divorce. You can see in our culture that it's quite a bit cheaper, or it can be cheaper to get a divorce than it is to get married. We live in an easy divorce culture. Well, so did Jesus. Essentially, the Pharisees, the experts of the law, have made it very easy for themselves, for the men of that culture. Remember, women didn't have any rights, so this didn't pertain to them. But the men could be easily divorced. Uh, they could simply get a divorce because they didn't really love their wife. They didn't like their wife or they had interest in someone else. And the reasoning for that belief or that system was largely based on an Old Testament um, uh, uh, command or, or part of the law from the book of Deuteronomy 21, 24, 1. And I want us to look at it because it gives us a foundation for the teaching of Jesus. Okay. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 24, 1. This is the system that the Pharisees were using. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, and, and remember that word, displeasing, because he finds something indecent, remember that word, about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, remember that word, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land uh, the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, so what in the world are we reading here? Okay, basically what was going on in the first century, this is Jesus's time, the Pharisees, the experts of the law were leveraging this Old Testament law, okay? This passage from the law to create an easy to divorce culture, okay, to, divorce, to make it easy to divorce their wives for basically any reason. Notice it said a man who becomes whose wife becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Now, I wish I could tell you that in the Hebrew, that meant something different than displeasing or indecent, but it really doesn't. It really means those things. It means if she doesn't like the way he cooks anymore, really, he could divorce her. Doesn't like the way she looks in a bathing suit anymore. You're on your way. Or just finds interest in another woman that he wants to be his wife. They could literally give a certificate and divorce her and send her on her way. And that was the culture that Jesus was living in. That was the culture that Jesus was teaching in. And that was the culture that Jesus was trying to make an impact by teaching about this kingdom kind of life. 
And so with that background set, I want us to look now at what Jesus teaches, what he says in Matthew 5, verse 31. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's referencing that passage we just read in Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we know from other teachings in the Bible and from other teachings from Jesus that God's plan for a husband and a wife is to be married until death do them part, right? As a matter of fact, Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 19, he says, so they, and he, they is a husband and a wife, are no longer two but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so God's plan for marriage from the beginning was and forever will be one man, one woman married for life. But in this passage, Jesus teaches that divorce may be permissible in one circumstance. And it's called, it's often referred to, the exception clause. The exception clause. So what is that? Okay, if you're taking notes, sexual immorality is the biblically permissible exception for a husband and wife to pursue divorce against his or her spouse. Okay, that's known as the exception clause. Now, understand, God's plan for a man and a woman is to be married until death do them part, even if sexual immorality occurs in a marriage. You remember what we talked about last Sunday or what Jesus said and we talked about last Sunday? He taught that we were reconciled to reconcile, right? We were reconciled to reconcile with others. God's heart, you must understand God's heart is always for repentance. It's always for mercy. It's always for restoration and reconciliation. However, Jesus says in this passage, in a case where sexual immorality has occurred in the context of a marriage relationship, and for whatever reason, repentance cannot happen or will not happen, and reconciliation cannot or will not be reached, Jesus says in that particular situation, divorce is the exception to God's plan for marriage. And so with that said, what does sexual immorality mean? What, what are we talking about here? That phrase, sexual immorality, it translates from a Greek word, pornea, which is where we get our word, porn. So that should begin to tell you a little bit about the meaning behind sexual immorality. It translates to mean a sexual relationship or encounter with any, anyone other than one spouse. Okay, this includes, but is not limited to adultery and prostitution, molestation, pornography, incest, homosexuality, etc. And so just to be clear, sexual immorality is a sexual relationship or encounter with anyone other than one's spouse. In this passage, it always raises a question when it comes to divorce. What, what about abuse in marriage? Is that a reason for divorce? Or, or doesn't Paul say something about abandonment? What about that? And the answer is yes, but, but today... We're in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And Jesus, and what he's doing here is taking this sacred institution, this gift from God called marriage, and again, he's driving it down on the heart level. Today is not a a broad, exhaustive teaching on marriage. That's for another day. Today, we're looking at what Jesus said. He's condemning the easy divorce culture of his day. He's condemning the idea of divorce for convenience. The the basis of Jesus' teaching is this, if you're taking notes. Yes, divorce is permitted in one circumstance, but divorce is never commanded. It's never commanded. You see, it's never, as as we were saying, in Christ's church, in the body of Christ, Jesus expects divorce to be the rare exception not the rule. Even even if if divorce is the norm of our culture, it's never meant to be the norm in the church. The norm in the church, the norm in the body of Christ is supposed to be mutual grace, mutual forgiveness and reconciliation. We are reconciled so that we can be reconciled with one another. Now, Jesus makes one other statement in this teaching on divorce that we need to look at closely. Verse 32, let me read it again. It says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus says here, outside of this one permissible exception, which is sexual immorality. Divorce is wrong. Divorce is sinful. And we know that, that divorce is sinful. But I want to say something to those of you who maybe walked through this. It's not the unforgivable sin. Many times in our church culture, we want to make it the unforgivable sin, but it's not. It is forgivable. Okay, I want you to hear that. But Jesus takes this step one step further, okay? And he says, if a man divorces his wife for any other reason than sexual immorality, like I don't like the way she cooks anymore and whatever, then he causes her to commit adultery. What does that mean? It means that if a man divorces his wife because he no longer just loves her or finds her attractive or whatever it might be, and then she moves on and remarries, the divorcing husband makes his ex-wife an adulterer when she remarries because the grounds for that original divorce were not biblical. And likewise, Jesus said, a man who marries a woman who is divorced without biblical grounds is also guilty of adultery. Tough teaching, straightforward teaching. Jesus is taking a biblical principle that was only being followed on the surface level, like checking a box or crossing off a list, and he's driving it deep down into the heart. And here's the truth. Here's the truth for all of us this morning. None of us, none of us can go back in time and undo what's already been done. We can't. If we could, all of us would do that. We all have regrets. We all have sins. We all have failures in our past. And if we could, we would go back and we would undo those things and we would do it the right way. But we just can't. We can't go back and undo what's been done. But what we can do is start today, walking in God's grace and commit our lives 
to Christ and his kingdom for the rest of our days. And you know the reason we can do that is because our God is a gracious God. He's a gracious God full of love and forgiveness who desires that we walk not in shame. He doesn't want you to walk in guilt. If you've been made to feel guilt for a past sin, that's not God, I'm telling you. That's some other spirit. His desire is for you not to walk in condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you today, Jesus, his heart for you is to walk in freedom, to walk in grace, and to walk in forgiveness that you've been freely given from his death and resurrection. That's what he desires for you. If you're walking in shame, if you're walking in condemnation, if you think you're disqualified because you've sinned in your past somewhere, that's not the spirit of God, and that's not the heart of Jesus Christ. He desires that you walk in victory today. So here's the bottom line for me and you. You only, here's the truth, you only have to be married for about 10 seconds to know that it, it's not easy. <laughs> I think I just heard my wife say amen, okay? <laughs> Marriage takes a lot of work and it's often the work of forgiving. It's often the work of sacrifice. It's often the work of surrendering and serving and reconciling. Marriage is the work of a godly husband and a godly wife who, who say from the beginning, you know, there are going to be some, some really difficult days in this marriage. There's going to be some days when the easiest thing would be just to sign some papers and go our separate ways. But we're not going to allow that to be an option for us. We will stay true we will, stay, we will stay faithful to one another and to God until death do us part. We'll stay committed through the good times and we'll stay committed through the bad times. We will forgive one another. We will repent when we sin and we will seek forgiveness and we will do the work of reconciliation just as we were reconciled through Christ. You see, that's marriage on the heart level. And that can begin today. No matter where you are in your walk, no matter where you are in, in, in your marriage, no matter if you're a single but you'd like to be married one day, this, this can begin today. This is how we walk in grace. This is how we walk in power and the victory of Christ Jesus. This is where we find it. This is where we take marriage and we drive it down to the heart level. And then from this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this natural transition. And he begins in the, in the following passages, he begins to share some principles about the words we speak. Okay, particularly he's talking about the, the oaths or, or the, un, the, the conditional promises actually that we make to one another. Okay, you, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about salt and light, and, and, and we said that there, the, we were talking about the importance of that making sure our words were seasoned with grace, right? In this passage, Jesus continues to move forward with that about the importance of our words being seasoned with honesty and truth. And in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus is actually correcting the thinking of the religious leaders. He's turning their ethics upside down. Once again, Jesus is confronting this truth that what's on the inside of us will inevitably make its way on the outside. So let's look at this together. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 36. This is all going to connect at the end, okay? He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So what Jesus is doing, he's doing the same thing here that he's done time and time again. He's reaching back to the Old Testament law. Okay, specifically in this passage to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 12, that says this, you shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And so the, the Pharisees, the religious experts of Jesus' day, they had kind of created some loopholes here to distinguish between oaths or promises made in the name of the Lord and then just an oath made to another man. Okay. In other words, they, they were teaching that we must keep or a man must keep his word, must keep his promise if it's made to the Lord. But then they were making exceptions and, and loopholes that if you made a promise to a man here on earth and something happened and you couldn't keep that promise, well, that was okay. You didn't necessarily have to keep your oath to someone else. And, and plus, there were, there were many who were making grand promises, grand oaths on, on the name of heaven and earth. Or, or on the, they were making an oath on the, on, the, on the name of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, or, or like on the hair of their head. They were making these grand promises to one another as if they could change the color of their hair. I know some of you are like, hey, I change the color of my hair every month. I know, but that's not what we're talking about here, okay? You're like, I can change my hair from gray to black. But that's not what Jesus is talking about, okay? He's talking about twisted promises, grand promises to try to convince someone that your word is your bond, that you really mean what you say, that you can be trusted even if you can't. Jesus is saying, look, do not do that, okay? But what is Jesus saying, okay? Jesus is saying this, do not take an oath at all. Don't, don't take an oath by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or whatever. Let your word be so seasoned with honesty and truth that you don't even need an oath. You don't even need a promise to guarantee that you are a person of your word. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't need an oath. You don't need to anchor something onto what you said you would do. To, to try to convince that person that you're going to do what you said. Be such a person of integrity that when you say, I will do that, I will be there, I will take care of this thing, that there's no need for an oath because you are so upright, you are so full of integrity that there's no doubt that you're going to follow through with what you said you will do. Jesus says, 
be so upright, so, so close to Christ, so squeaky clean, that when you say, hey, I promise I'll do that, that no one has to say, huh, I hope they really do. I hope they do this time, because once before they told me they would, and they didn't. Are you a person of your word? Or are you a person who, when you say, I'll be there, I'll take care of that, you can count on me, that that person who hears that knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, they'll be there. They'll do the thing that they said they will do. You see, Jesus reminds us, he's reminding us here that everything we do, everything we say, everything that we think all takes place before the watchful eye of our great king, our God. He knows it all, right? I was interested this week to read that in Switzerland, every year they throw this big festival and all the, all the people will, will put on masks and, and then they go throughout their towns and their cities and, and they do things that, that they would never even consider doing otherwise if they didn't have this mask on, going to places that they would never consider going if they didn't have this mask on because the mask conceals their identity. And therefore, with the mask on, they're emboldened to do these things or to take part in these things. Okay, And, and there was this one year that a local pastor just, just couldn't believe what he was seeing take place in his town. And he uh, had a church right, on the, right there in the middle of town. And so he put up a sign, and his sign outside of his church said this, God sees behind the mask. God sees behind the mask. That's really kind of what Jesus is getting at here. God doesn't just see behind the mask. He sees our heart, right? He sees our heart. As followers of Christ, we are to commit. We're to take this serious, that whatever we say, we're going to do. Whatever we think, what thoughts come to our mind, the actions that come from our hearts, that those things bring honor and glory to him. Now, Jesus is specifically talking about our words. And, and so I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I couldn't help but think of this quote from Martin Luther. Real short, he said, peace if possible. But then look at the last part. Truth at all costs. Truth at all costs. I try to teach my kids that. Because, you know, sometimes kids, you know, they'll, they'll bend the truth just a little bit. Maybe just leave out a part. And the reason they do that is to avoid consequences. But you know who else does that? Me and you. <laughs> Maybe we just don't tell it exactly the way it was. Or we kind of give our version, our perspective, which is not exactly, we twist it just a little bit. Maybe to avoid some consequences, to, to prevent from being uncomfortable or to keep someone from thinking less of us. That's why I love this quote, truth at all costs. To be a person of integrity is always more important than saving ourselves from undesired consequences. Truth at all costs. Jesus finish, finishes up this section. Very straightforward statement we can all remember. Matthew 5, verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Later on in the book of James, James writes, uh, reflects this when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What does that mean? 
Jesus is saying, if we have a reputation for not keeping our word, for saying one thing and then doing something different, or promising something and not delivering, or exaggerating our stories, we will eventually become known as someone who is not a person of integrity, someone that cannot be trusted. And that should never be the case for a follower of Christ. Because we are a living testimony for Jesus Christ. For some people, you're the only Bible they'll ever read. They'll never come into a church to hear about Jesus Christ. You're the only Jesus Christ they're ever going to see and understand. And if they see you as a person that can't be trusted, a person who has no integrity, a person who says one thing and then does something different, they're going to say, I, I really don't want any part of your, your Christ. I don't want any part of your, your faith. If that's what it looks like, if that's what it is, no thanks. I can find plenty of that in the world. That's why it's so important that we, we grab hold of these teachings. That's why Jesus says, hey, just say yes and no. Let your yes be yes. Let, let your no be no. Don't take oaths. Don't make big promises because you're trying to convince someone that you're, you're trustworthy. Be such a person as a heart of Christ in you that no one doubts that what you say is what you'll do, that you're a person of your word. I read a true story this week. I thought I might share it with you as we close here. <clears throat> it's about a, a waiter who was uh, working all the shifts that he could get, just trying to make ends meet. And one night, uh, just as the restaurant that he worked at was about to close, the waiter found a briefcase in a, in, in sitting on the, the bench of a booth that he had been serving. He, he grabbed the, the briefcase. He, he ran outside to try to find the owner, but there was nobody in sight. And so there he sat, restaurant closed, with somebody's briefcase. And no one saw the waiter find that briefcase, and no one saw him put it in his car after the restaurant was closed as he was heading home. But for that waiter, there was no question as to what he was supposed to do. Took the briefcase home, he opened it up, he, he searched through its contents until he found a contact for the owner. The next day, he makes a series of phone calls, locates the, the owner, they find a place to meet up, he returns the briefcase. And at that point, the owner is so grateful, so thankful, he tells him that there was an envelope with $25,000 cash inside that he was using to pay some medical bills, a loan that he had taken to pay some medical bills. And how devastating he, he, it was to have lost that briefcase. And so, you know, the, the waiter felt good, went back to work the next day. He told his co-workers what he had done. This is a true story told his co-workers about the briefcase and the contents. And he began to receive such ridicule and such hatred from his co-workers because of what he had done. They told him, that was not, that was not your responsibility to return that. It was their fault for leaving it. You should, have, you should have taken that. That was your money. And it became so, um, it became so intense that he actually had to quit his job. And he was going to have to go across town and find more work. Now, first of all, that's sad. It's sad that we live in a culture like that, where good is considered wrong and where wrong is considered good. But I, you know what the Bible says about a person of integrity like that, that, that actually practices truth at all costs? You know what the Bible says? 
Proverbs 28. Better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and rich. That's the heart of what Jesus is teaching us. Be a person of your word. And I told you we're going to come full circle. This applies. If you're a married person, this applies to you. Let your yes be yes in your marriage. Let your no be no. Yes, I will stay committed to you no matter what. There's no outs here. I will be committed to you. No, I will not leave you when things get tough. I'll forgive you as I've been forgiven. I will repent when I sin against you. And I will seek reconciliation. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Practice this with your family. Start with your family. Make sure they know that you are a man or a woman of your word. At work, be a person of integrity, a person who keeps their promises, who, who does what they're, they're expected to do, whether they're told to do it or not. At school, in the community, Yes, you can, you can trust my words because they reflect my heart. My words that I speak reflect what's in my heart. And because my heart is set on truth and set on Christ, every word that comes from my mouth will be truth. This is how we live the kingdom life. This is how we become a person of integrity. This is how we become a husband or a wife that loves their spouse like Christ loves the church. This is how we become a person who speaks truth even if it costs them something. In all situations, in all circumstances, in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, in our churches, we strive to be people who speak truth, to be people who share truth, and people who always stand on the truth of God no matter what. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us, dear Heavenly Father. This is what we desire to be. We read a passage like this, and man, it challenges us to our core. Father, help us to be people that, that, that stand on truth and walk in truth and live in truth and speak in truth, no matter what situation. In our marriages, yes, but in our families, in the moments that we are surrounded by people and especially those moments when there's no one around. Help us to stand on the truth. Help us to be people of our word. Father, I pray that we would live such a life being salt and light that when people look upon us, they're curious to know what makes us live the way we live. And therein we have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for sins in our past where we've made wrong decisions, wrong motives. We're all guilty. But through Christ, we're all set free. We all walk in victory through Christ. Father, thank you for that. That because we were once reconciled, as sinners, back to our Father, that we should always strive for reconciliation with others. Father, thank you for this teaching. Now, Father, 
drive it down deep into our hearts so that we will do what your word says. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.